Let me start today by quoting St. Augustine. Now you can say Augustine or Augustine. But I believe Augustine is a city in Florida and Augustine is his name. He said, love God and do what you will. A 16th century French humanist, Francois Rabelais, restated Augustine's quote, saying it this way, do what you will. Rabelais left out God, and uh, of course, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Leave God out of the picture and doing your will or what you please is not subject to the judgment of right and wrong necessarily. You leave God out of the picture and it is difficult then to begin to distinguish right from wrong, justice from injustice. Now, some may want to argue this latter point, and they do. There are those who have written books and taken positions that you can have morality without God. But I will say two things here about that kind of view. One, at least you could argue this that leaving God out of the picture surely weakens the case for an objective right and wrong. At least it weakens the case for an objective view of right and wrong. Secondly, in those circles that have rejected God or ignored his claim upon their life, there is no real appetite for morality that has a right and a wrong to it. Now, all you have to do is to point out the examples in the modern world where people do not want to judge anyone. Doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not judge, lest you be judged? But of course, it also says in another place, ye who are spiritual judge all things. Now, there is a place for judgment in everything. We simply have to be careful how we judge. But life requires judgment. Thus, I believe what uh, Dostoevsky's view was in his great and wonderful book, and maybe some of you have tried to read it. Very few ever succeed because it is about 1,200 pages in English. It's called Brothers Karamazov. And in that work, there is a famous quote that you will see over and over and over. Uh, when I read it, I, I should have counted all the times that that comes up in one way or another. And it is this. If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Now, I happen to think this Russian author is right. He was steeped in Christianity and he was concerned about right and wrong. He was concerned about sin and suffering. He was concerned about justice and injustice. And he believed surely that you could not rightly judge those things unless there was one above us and beyond us who has indeed revealed his will. What is right 
and what is wrong. I am starting a series of sermons on the seven deadly sins. Today, though, I want to introduce simply the category of sin before starting on to those seven specific sins. Uh, I want to start from the life of David. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and 12, you find David's great sin. You find an episode in his life about uh, his rebellion against God and his sins that probably is second in importance for Christians down through the ages, second to the sin of Adam and Eve, which of course is the great sin, the fall. I want you today to be able to see the nature and power of sin. And I want you to see how David dealt with this matter when he fully recognized the heinousness of his crimes against God and against his neighbor. Well, the story goes something like this, and I'll try to compress it so as not to, to prolong this. But in chapter 11, you will find the story, and it opening, its opening foreshadows what is to come. What you find is the opening tells us something about David's heart. Listen to how it is opened. In the spring, when kings lead their armies into battle, David stays home. He seems, if you will, to uh, not be engaged in the affairs of state. He refuses in some sense. It doesn't say he was sick. It doesn't say anything about why he stayed home, except it suggests some things. He should have been exercising his leadership as a general to lead his army against the enemies of the people. But instead, he stays home and he must have not been sleeping very well because he gets up from his bed and walks out upon his roof. And I take from all of this language that he's kind of bored and satiated. He's uh, indifferent and apathetic. I used to think maybe, well, he's going through a midlife crisis, but uh, I'm not sure of that. I think uh, this idea of going through a midlife crisis only confines that to one event. I, someone asked me, have you ever gone to a midlife crisis? Yes, about seven of them. <laughs> if you live long enough, you'll discover about every 10 years you go through a midlife crisis. But he's apathetic and indifferent to his duty and to the things of God. Now, there is a word for this in, in Latin that uh, goes back to the seven deadly sins, aseity. And what this means, of course, is that King David has gotten to the place in his life where he is apathetic. He is in a state of sloth. He, life doesn't taste too good for him. It's, it's kind of boring. He's, he's in, if you will, indifferent to everything. Now, that is, a, that is a dangerous state. And the reason that it is a dangerous state, because aseity is one of the seven deadly sins, or capital sins, and they are called capital sins, because these sins lead to other sins. These sins are major sins because they lead to a lot of other sins in your life. 
So the point is that David has reached a stage, a, a, a place in his life, a psychological state where, you know, his food doesn't taste. Nothing, life is not exciting. Not even warfare at this point can get him excited. Therefore, he, he opens himself up to some real danger. And what happens? Well, he discovers a beautiful woman taking a bath. He looks upon her and he commits the second sin of lust. And in verse 4, it says that he sent messengers to get her. Now, both in the NIV and in other translations that I have looked at, they, they all tend to translate this, go get her. However, the Hebrew word for go, go get or the word get is much stronger. It is the word take. Now, it seems to me that is an important distinction that needs to be emphasized. It's not just a matter of go get or invite her. It was go take her and bring her to me. Now, this is, of course, the subject of much literature and art when it comes to David and Bathsheba. There are operas. There are great pieces in literature. There are great paintings that all depict the relationship of David and Bathsheba, and almost all of them want to romanticize this. From the start, you can see that there's nothing romantic about this. This is the king's power exercising, quote, his kingly prerogatives. And he takes the woman. She conceives. Now, he doesn't want to marry the woman. Make no mistake about this. This is not a tale of romance. What he wants to do is to make sure that the husband is credited with the pregnancy. So what does he do? He calls him from the front under a ruse and tries to get him to go home and to be with his wife. But he, he, he's engaged. His brothers are on the field fighting for Israel. And that's where he wants to be. He wants to do his duty. And no matter how hard he tries, read the story, he can't get him to be in a position to be blamed. So what does he do? Well, here is power now beginning to act. He goes and says to his top lieutenant or general, take Uriah and put him in the heat of the battle. In other words, let him become cannon fodder. He is likely to be killed, and he was. It was then that this king, yes, King David, who then brought her to his household, and she did bear him a son, and of course, he became the famous King Solomon. But I want you to notice the last verse in verse 27. Look what the judgment of God is. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, some time has obviously passed between chapter 11 and chapter 12. Here is this apathetic, slothful man who continues, if you will, in his sleep and slumber, till he has almost entirely erased this memory from his life. 
You know, we have a way of doing that. I, I, I get a kick out of uh, all of the recent spate of, of talking about memories that are brought up in a certain way. You know, this idea of remembering things or suppressing things is a very complex matter to begin with. The Bible actually talks a great deal about this. But we have mechanisms within us that can conflate our past memories or we have mechanisms within us that can suppress our memory so that we can go on with life. In fact, it may properly used be a good thing. But on the other hand, not when it comes to the fact that you've committed a great injustice. In this case, King David has committed adultery and he has committed murder. God sends a prophet, Nathan. He tells him a story and if you will, just look at this story very briefly. I know you've heard it read, but listen to it again. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. Look what happens next. David grows incensed and he speaks his own judgment. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan pointed his finger at him, and I like to think it was kind of long and bony finger, and said, You are the man. Immediately he was smitten with guilt. Everything that he thought he had forgotten or left behind or suppressed or wasn't a big deal now flooded into his consciousness. And notice the last words of our text. I, says David, have sinned against God. I'm going to talk about the power of sin briefly today. And um, I don't have much time at all. This will be suggestive, very quick. The power of sin. David saw the power of sin at work in him, for he went from a state of sloth to a state of lust, and eventually to a state of murder. David saw the power of sin being exercised in his life. And since he was a powerful man, and with power 
and the right of kings go privileges, he no doubt was thinking. The small people are subject to the law. The small people pay the taxes. The small people get whatever health care there is. We have our own. You see, Congress is exempt, by the way, from what you and I will experience in the future. Power has its privileges. But all of a sudden, David recognized one thing, that every soul that lives is subject to another power. And that is the power of God. And he has displeased God Almighty. In one sense, he has come to his senses. His state was worse off before he recognized his sin and began to confess. The power of sin can put you in a stupor. The power of sin can in some ways mesmerize you. You can always see it in your neighbor, but you can minimize it in yourself. We can always rationalize or offer up excuses. But sin in my own life can be excused. Didn't Jesus warn about the log and the speck? Very easy to do. Let me go on. How then does he deal with his sin? He confesses to the Lord. Let me say the first step in dealing with one's sin is confession. What is confession? It is agreeing with God. And David, at the end of this story, which brings out in him the heinousness of his crime, confesses, I have sinned against you, God. So the first step is a simple confession. I have sinned. I have sinned. He did not become bitter against God's judgment. But immediately... He recognizes that he has sinned and he submits, if you will, to God's judgment. The second step for him was to seek a place of amendment and repentance. Now, we don't have that in the text, but if you turn to Psalm 51, you will find a psalm of confession. And let me read the psalm title. You don't have to turn there. It says in Psalm 51, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Notice what he does in seeking the Lord and a place of repentance. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. My friend, when you get beyond the place where your sins no longer bring you grief, no longer break your spirit, in some sense, you're already dead. It takes a live person to God to talk about a broken and contrite heart. 
Look what he says in verse 15. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Return to the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. He immediately begins to recognize in this prayer that he needs not only to agree with God, but he needs to turn from his sin and once again turn to the Lord. When he found himself at distance from God, away, indifferent, the cure for that is drawing near. That's, in a nutshell, what repentance is. The word in the Old Testament means to turn or to return. In the New Testament, it means to have a change of mind. In every case, it is, if you will, drawing near to the Lord once again, in spite of the fact that you are under his judgment and you have grieved him and sinned against him. He begins to remember with new, fresh, and painful poignancy what he had done. It's no happy thing to realize the damage that you have done in a case like this. It has ended up in the loss of a beautiful young man who apparently, as to his motives, was as, as innocent as he could be. But he was treated as cannon fodder. Three, he sook God's forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let me go back to Dostoevsky. The book is an amazing work. There is nothing like it in English, except in translation. He wrote it in Russian. And in the book, he presents the greatest argument against Christianity that anyone can find or devise. The only effective argument against Christianity, and it is this. God, what about the pain and suffering that we see in this world? The problem that C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. If you are a good and merciful God, why do you allow so much suffering? And no one in the history of literature that I know of has been able to capture the depth of the misery and suffering that is in this world in the way that he has in literature. And if you only read those passages, you would come to despair. You would come maybe even, if not to atheism, then to agnosticism. But running parallel through this, the 1,200 pages or so in English, you will find also woven in another theme and this theme is that there is hope because of the love of God. And what is the love of God? That this God sent his son to suffer in this world for you and for me and to bear away our sins in his own body. David knew with the Lord there was mercy. He had not forgotten that. And when he confessed, I have sinned, He's also confessing, maybe there's hope for me. The word sin, people don't like to use it today. But unless we are willing to use it in a biblical way, my friend, there is no such thing as hope, much less joy. 
And I hope you will journey with me over the next few weeks, seven weeks, as we consider one of these sins at a time. And I hope you will purpose in your heart not only to listen to these sermons and to hear the scriptures, but that indeed you too will become alive to your offenses against God and neighbor. And you will seek amendment of life. This then is what we can learn from King David. He was in the end called a man after God's own heart. Amen.